0: We're finishing something that we've been in for, for a while. But as we finish this, there's something that I, I want to... I just want to mention uh, before we pray and then get started. There is a lot of felt experience as it relates to what the church is, who the church is, and who we are in relationship to the church. My hope is that, that when we finish today at the very least, we all have an understanding of, of who we are as the church and who the Billings Vineyard is, and also how you are a part of the Billings Vineyard as the, the wider body of Christ. One of the things that, that you see on the, as you come in every Sunday is a giant sign that says, Welcome Home. Uh, that sign is either uh, a welcome, encouragement, and uh, and bringer of peace, or it's a fantastic lie. And so what our goal is this morning is to identify where we fall on that spectrum and deal with it. So let's pray. Holy Spirit, we acknowledge your presence here, and even when we say come Holy Spirit, we know that you were here first, that you've been at work long before we got here, And so, Father, we pray that that you would connect us to that work now. I pray that that you would put your finger on all of those things, all of the experiences that we've had, the journey that, that we have had with church, for those that are just beginning their journey, to those that have been on the road for a while. I pray that we would connect with your glory through Scripture this morning. And I pray that at the end, we would be a church made in your image, doing the things that you do, and caring about the things that you care about. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, this morning we are talking about glory released. So for the past four months, four months, man, January was four months ago. That was, man. I've uh, also, January was four months ago. I'm I'm saying that just to set that in my mind because I feel justified in uh, the the knowledge that it should be warmer right now than it has been. So I'm just going to let that kind of sit out there and then kind of maybe continue this morning now that I've gotten to say that. But for the the past four months, we've been on like a really fast and furious journey through the gospel of John, and we've been following the thread of glory that permeates the narrative of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Now, during this journey, we have continued to return to this definition, the way that we identify glory as the weighty felt presence of God that's realized through Jesus, who is the self-expression of God to his creation. And so this weighty felt presence is the way that we finish with the Gospel of John, looking for this in this final interaction between Jesus and his disciples. Now, the storyboard of of this experience that we've had from January forward, um, we we saw Jesus reveal his glory uh, to the people that chose to follow him by meeting them where they were, by closing the gap when they chose to follow Jesus. We saw Jesus actually close that gap between him and those that chose to follow him. He also demonstrated his love by seeing beyond the false front that those individuals utilized to cope with the world and their experiences with life. He saw through the false narrative. He saw through the false front. He saw through the mask of brokenness. He revealed the reality that his glory could and would lead to healing but not a healing to be better, especially not a healing to be better at the rat race of life, but a healing that would allow us to leave the rat race altogether, to leave methods of competitive survival and allow God to be in the place designed by God as a center of our order. We also saw how glory was replicated as those that experience glory pass on glory to others by taking on the mantle of Christ and doing for others what was done for them. And we know that also with ourselves, that, that, that we, are, we, we have glory to us, but then also glory through us as we care about the things that Jesus cares about, and we begin to do the things that Jesus does. We celebrated Holy Week last year, or last week, also last year. We celebrated a couple of, you know, a handful of times, right? We celebrated Holy Week, and we marked the courage, the authority, the submission, the obedience, and the protective love that's exemplified by Jesus as he chose to go to the cross and answer for all of the sins of mankind. That event that we celebrated together last week, gives weight to the presence of God, a weight of love that demonstrates humiliating sacrifice. The weight of punishment for sin placed onto Jesus. The weight of my sin placed onto Jesus. Then given to me in the place of the weight of my sin is the weight of love That flows from this complete sacrifice of a God that meets me where I am. The God that sees me for who he created me to be. The God that heals me. And then makes me righteous. By taking the punishment that I deserve onto himself. He gives me what I don't deserve. He gives me right standing with God right standing as God's chosen adopted son. So today, we finish our study of glory by watching glory released by Jesus into those that are going to create the foundations of what we know as the church. This is our family history. This release of glory creates a dichotomy of relationship And in this dichotomy, it places God back as the center of order and sets everything else to function as it was designed from the very beginning. But we know, unfortunately, which kind of led to my disclaimer at the beginning of this, we know that this dichotomy has been corrupted and usurped possibly more, well, probably more than it's actually been experienced as it was designed. This, This relationship with God through the church. This passage that we finish with today, this passage illuminates the dichotomy so that we can see what the church is supposed to look like and we can measure reality against intention. Now, we've looked at this passage in the past. We actually looked at this from a different angle when we w- finished uh, a series this past summer. And so a little bit of this is going to sound familiar, which is good because this is really the foundation of how we become the Vineyard Church together. We've looked at this passage before, and we've connected, we've connected it to a setting that is really quite phenomenal in terms of what it means with how much God understands us. We're taken to a charcoal fire. We're actually going to see two charcoal fires in this section. Charcoal is important. Charcoal is intention. Charcoal demonstrates how active the Holy Spirit is in this story. One reason that we know this is true is that it's, it, it's in our, our psychology, in our physiology, the way that we actually were designed. The power of smell is like the craziest sense of all time. Of all the senses, the, the power of smell has a, a distinct uh, and, and very unique power that connects us to things. You think about familiar smells and how, how those familiar smells, whether they're good or bad, um, link us to events, and then sometimes even good or bad smells might link us to people. We have like this sort of like, like sensory-led scrapbook moment when we have smells hit our nose that links us to our past, but not just to, our, like, to, to the experience of our past. It's an interesting link in the human brain where smell, memory, but also emotion come together and they create this interesting dynamic where smell can't just remind us of a person, place, or an event. It connects us to the emotion of that moment as well. Charcoal has a distinct smell. I'm just... Wondering here, how many people right now are are thinking of the smell of charcoal and they're thinking summertime? That is not necessarily intended, but I'm there with you. But you understand how just that smell can link us to a memory, but not just the memory. We also can be taken back into the experience and actually be in that place. A charcoal fire, another piece of the intention of this a charcoal fire will burn for a long time. The fact that that there's charcoal fire is written in Scripture here is intentional because a charcoal fire is going to burn for a long time. It's also going to burn rather hot. Charcoal burns hotter than just wood, but also to feel that heat, you've got to be close to the coals. Intense heat that demands being close to the fire. So a charcoal fire that's used for heat would be more intimate because of how close you have to get to it to be warmed up. This proximity caused a little bit of trouble for Peter, a disciple of Jesus, on the night that Jesus was betrayed. Now viewed from the lens of of the weighty felt presence of God, this use of charcoal must be seen. We have to see this as a connection A connection between God and Peter, but also Peter and his sin. Now, when we connect Peter to his sin, and when we start talking about connecting ourselves to our sin, we can't do it for the reason that secular culture or maybe social media culture would connect Peter to his sin. Everywhere else, in every other context, outside of the intended context of the church, connecting a person to their sin is the propagation of guilt. This guilt is a tool for justice, it's a tool to judge, it's a tool to punish. Often, we experience then the sin becomes a label an identity, an outer garment that testifies to the world what type of person is found within. Now in the secular world, in this growing cacophony of social media that we experience, these labels are inescapable. They follow everywhere. They often grow into something that has, at best, a casual relationship with the truth, and a casual relationship with the people that are labeled sinner. This is the best example for the term that you hear me use when I say competitive survival. This is the best example of competitive survival. When one person's sin can be used to destroy them, especially if that destruction can obscure the sin of those that are doing the destruction. And we know that the church is not immune to this behavior. Often the sin of a Christian is used to disqualify them. It's used to excuse the resistance to a theology of forgiveness. And we know that that is rampant in a culture of justice. Now the celebration that we just experienced together exposes... This is a perversion of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. It is also a perversion of the mission of God. The truth must come out, absolutely. But that truth is that that glory was released to us, and so glory must be released through us. What Jesus did was not just an act of love for me, but a demonstration of how I am to love others as a testimony to what Jesus did. Peter is our example of glory released, and it provides us with a fitting end to our journey through the Gospel of John. Before we get to John 21, for a little bit of context, let's jump backwards into John 18, starting in verse 15. Simon Peter followed Jesus as did another of the disciples. The other disciple was acquainted with the high priest, so he was allowed to enter the high priest's courtyard with Jesus. Peter had to stay outside the gate. Then the disciple who knew the high priest spoke to the woman watching at the gate, and she let Peter in. The woman asked Peter, You're not one of the man's disciples, are you? No, he said, I am not. Because it was cold, the household servants and the guards had made a charcoal fire. They stood around it, warming themselves, and Peter stood with them, warming himself. Jump in a few verses now into verse 25. We just saw the first denial of Peter on the night that Jesus was betrayed. Now we see the finishing of this act of sin. Meanwhile, as Simon and Peter was standing by the fire, warming himself, they asked him again, You're not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it, saying, No, I am not. But one of the household slaves of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Didn't I see you out there in the olive grove with Jesus? Again, Peter denied it, and immediately a rooster crowed. A rooster crowed. Now what we're dealing with here is one of history's first examples of someone that went through the relational steps of meeting Jesus. Went through the steps of knowing Jesus. Somebody that recognized that Jesus was the Son of God. Somebody that is becoming aware that salvation was through faith in Jesus. Somebody that is choosing To have faith in Jesus, but then in a moment of trial, testing, hardship, that person chooses self over faith. So Peter is a leader in the growing Jesus following community. He had proximity to Jesus. He saw firsthand the miracles. He was a witness to the healing, the deliverance. He was a witness to how nature responded to the words of Jesus Christ. So we have to be clear on this point in our knowledge of Peter and what's happening here, what's going on. In Romans chapter 3, Paul writes that we all fall short of the glory of God. When he points out that we are all sinners, Paul is talking about a starting point, the entry point of relationship with God. This is where historically Peter has lost a lot of grace. Because the question becomes, how could someone that was so close to Jesus have such a failure of morality? We know that this is not the story of someone that was just meeting Jesus, maybe somebody that was just meeting Jesus and kind of being confronted with their sin, maybe in the same way as the woman at the well in John chapter 4. That's not what we're dealing with here. We're talking about a trained and tested disciple. Peter had crossed this threshold years before. We see this in Luke chapter 5 when Jesus meets Peter and helps him catch some fish, something that we're going to also see here in a second uh, that's going to kind of create some really cool bookends to the life of, and ministry of, of Peter. But we see in, in this earthly encounter Peter recognizes something in Jesus. And Luke chapter 5 sees Peter fall to his knees in awe. As he's on his knees in this boat in Luke chapter 5, in awe of Jesus and who Jesus is recognizing who he's facing, Peter confesses his sins to Jesus and makes a choice to follow him. This is where Peter entered into relationship with Jesus. This is where the transformation begins. And this is where we can make a critical error if we see this as the moment that Peter gained perfection. Peter is not a perfected work. Peter is a perfecting work. Even though he knew Jesus, even though he learned at the feet of Jesus, even though he saw nature respond to the commands of Jesus, he was still capable of moral failure. Now what adds to this tragedy is is that Peter thought that he was better than this. Before this testing, before this night, Peter had presented himself in a way that makes his denials seem even more egregious. He boasted about his faith. He even said he was ready to die for Jesus, and he actually did some things that show that that was true. But when given the chance, when presented with the opportunity to demonstrate where he was in this progression of perfection, he denied any relationship with Jesus. So, what happens to a follower of Jesus when they fail? What happens to a disciple? What happens to a leader? What happens to someone that that intimately knows Jesus but falls into sin? In our culture, fallen Christians are disqualified. They're removed. They're excommunicated. And... most tragically profane of all, they're eviscerated. I know I'm guilty of this myself. I've said things like they should have known better. I've said things like they should have been better. I've said things like what were they thinking? I've said things like they must not have been who they really said they were. And then after that, I'm also guilty of making everything that they did that was good, all of that, allowing it to be tainted by their failure, tainted by what they've done, and then also, based on that, the community that's supposed to love them, the community that's supposed to say, welcome home, is no longer available to them. And I've been a part of that as well. That is not a reflection of the felt, weighty presence of God. That is not the intention of the church. That's not the mission of God. Something different happens to Peter, and it pushes back against the cultural narrative. This starts on the day of the resurrection. This is captured in Mark chapter 16. When they entered the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a white robe, sitting on the right side, The women were shocked, but the angel said, Don't be alarmed. You're looking for Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He isn't here, he's risen from the dead. Look, this is where they laid his body. Now go tell his disciples, including Peter, that Jesus is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there, just as he told you before he died. This is on Easter morning. An angel of the Lord reveals something to us here by including Peter by name. Obviously, according to this angel, Peter isn't disqualified. Peter wasn't shut out. Peter wasn't eviscerated. Egregious sin. Maybe the most egregious sin of all. Not that I want to create a hierarchy of sin, but this sin's pretty dang bad. He denied relationship with Jesus. Not just denied relationship, he denied anything. He denied all of it. He denied reality. He denied his identity. Looking on the face of Jesus in the eye, Peter is able to say, I don't know him. In the face of that egregious sin. Peter is still included. Something's up. By one charcoal fire, Peter refused to even admit that he was an acquaintance of Jesus. Now, the second charcoal fire. Remembering how smell works. Remembering that as we go through this passage of John 21 the smell of charcoal would be activating the memory of Peter, connecting him to the last time that he smelled charcoal. In the presence of this second charcoal fire, with that smell activating memory and emotion, Jesus offers his response to the grievous sin that Peter committed. And we see sin met with glory. John 21. Later, Jesus appeared again to his disciples beside the Sea of Galilee. This is how it happened. Several of the disciples were there. Simon Peter, Thomas, nicknamed the twin, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples. Simon Peter said, I'm going fishing. We'll come too, they all said. They went out in a boat, and they caught nothing all night. This is not the same as me saying I'm going fishing. This is not an activity of rest. This is not an activity of restoration. This isn't putting on what Brad calls the Montana tuxedo and getting into the river This isn't cracking a bush light with the Slim Jim. This is an admission. I'm going fishing. Is an admission of defeat. Peter is at the depth of his cancellation. See, what he's saying when he says, I'm going fishing, he's saying, I'm going back to what I know. I'm going back to the way things were at the very beginning. I'm going back to the place before all of this started. Peter's saying, I'm done. I'm returning to the life that I know. I'm returning to the old way. I'm going fishing. I'm going fishing. See, one element of the old way is something that we've talked a lot about in the book of John. One way of the old way for Peter was Peter working in Peter's power. And we also know that every time he worked in his own power, it didn't really pan out for him. The same thing, going back to the old way. Working in the power of Peter ends in catching nothing all night. He can't do it himself. He returned to the old way and finds he can't do it himself. In his own power, Peter cannot achieve. When Peter is the center of his own order, Peter is not effective. And then Jesus. Verse 4. At dawn, Jesus was standing on the beach, but the disciples couldn't see who it was. He called out, fellows, have you caught any fish? No, they replied. Then he said, throw out your net on the right side of the boat and you'll get some. So they did, and they couldn't haul in the net because there were, it was, there were so many fish in it. Then the disciple, Jesus loved, said to Peter, it's the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his tunic, for he had stripped for work, jumped into the water, and headed to shore. The others stayed with the boat and pulled the loaded net to the shore, for they were only a few hundred yards from shore. When they got there, they found breakfast waiting for them, fish cooking over a charcoal fire and some bread. Peter now with the bookends of relationship with Jesus, the fish, and the fire. Verse 10, bring some of the fish that you've just caught, Jesus said. So Simon Peter went aboard and dragged the net to shore. There were 153 large fish, and yet the net hadn't torn. Now come and have some breakfast, Jesus said. None of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? For they knew it was the Lord. Then Jesus served them the bread and the fish. This was the third time that Jesus had appeared to his disciples since he had been raised from the dead. Peter, with the disciples, standing at the charcoal fire, his memory and emotions activated. Three denials. After breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me? more than these. Yes, Lord. Peter replied, You know I love you. Then feed my lambs, Jesus said. Jesus repeated the question, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord. Peter said, You know I love you. Then take care of my sheep, Jesus said. A third time, He asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt that Jesus asked the question a third time. He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said, Then feed my sheep. We see two elements here one is a removal of guilt. And then we see a restoration. Through the death of Jesus Christ, God has provided the means for removing guilt, opening the way for us to know the blessings of right relationship with Him. And the removal of guilt is the work of God alone. We see this in Romans chapter 8 who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for His own? No one. For God himself has given us right standing with him. The removal of guilt requires confession. Yes, it requires that we agree with God that we are guilty. We see this in Psalm 32. Finally, I confessed all my sins to you and stopped trying to hide my guilt. I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord and you forgave me. All of my guilt is gone. In 1 John chapter 1 if we claim we have no sin, we are only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. But if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. The removal of guilt comes by way of the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. When we think about that as the removal of the mechanism for the removal of guilt. I become even more aware of my egregious sin against others when I apply guilt to them. Second Corinthians, Paul writes, for God made Christ who never sinned to be the offering for our sins so that we could be made right with God through Christ. The letter to Titus, Paul writes, he gave his life to free us from every kind of sin, to cleanse us, to make us his very own people, totally committed to doing good deeds. And then John again in First John. But if we're living in the light, as God is in the light, then we have fellowship with each other and the blood of Jesus' Son cleanses us from all sin. The results of, of guilt being removed is a clean conscience. It's peace with God, peace with each other, but also access To God's presence, God's joy, God's hope, and a desire to worship God that comes with also a desire to serve God. Glory to becomes glory through. Feed his sheep. Feed his sheep. Sounds like reinstatement. This is the weighty presence of God coming against the sin of Peter. Restoration is a resumption to a previous state or position. This is demonstrated in human relationships, but this is also demonstrated by God. In his love and grace, he restores fallen humanity and lifts up his people to their former place of service. Peter was not... Brought back halfway. Peter was not brought back, but with a lesser role. Peter, the rock that the church would be built upon, fully restored. Reflected in Romans chapter 7. I've discovered this principle of life that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. I love God's law with all my heart, but there's another power within me that is at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Anybody here ever prayed that prayer? Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from from this life that is dominated by sin and death? Thank God. The answer is Jesus Christ, our Lord. So you see how it is. In my mind, I really want to obey God's law, but because of my sinful nature, I am a slave to sin. This being true means that the heroes of the faith throughout history, in a line that includes you and I, all need restoration, all require reinstatement. The basis of reinstatement is found in the reality that God does not remember sin. It's a distinct difference between the character of God and the character of culture. We see this in Psalm 103. He has removed our sins as far from us as the east is from the west. He has unfailing love for us. Lamentations 3. The faithful love of the Lord never ends. His mercies never cease. Because his mercies never cease. Mercy can never cease to be extended by those that know Jesus and are called according to his purposes. That's the church. The courage, authority, submission, obedience, and protective love that is exemplified by Jesus becomes the task that we all share as we extend restorative mercy as our act of humiliating sacrifice. What was done for us becomes what is done through us. The glorification of the the risen Lord extends through his church in this action. What Peter did was a crime against the Almighty. Egregious, but it was also another moment in the journey of his life that brought him closer to the heart of God And made him a better leader. To understand mercy. To be able to operate with mercy. All of that is a result of having received mercy in the first place. Glory to, followed by glory through. We know that Peter by all rights, should have been disqualified from, his, from the mission of God. We know Adam, by all rights, should be disqualified from the mission of God. Instead, he found a God that moved towards him and closed the gap. He found a God that saw through his brokenness offered healing and restoration, a God that bore the consequences of his sin so that he might live. Peter felt the glory of God and was commissioned to demonstrate this glory to the world. As we turn back to worship together this morning, the reality of the kingdom of God is that glory too becomes glory through let's worship together